people have noticed that for the most part in this church, there's an absence of icons, including a cross. And people have asked, how come you don't have a cross at this church, on, high up on a steeple or somewhere in the front? My answer is that we, we do have a cross, we live under the cross, we preach the cross, that it is certainly more inward than it ever is external. Because you can have an outward symbol of a cross and have no substance of the crucified life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. The last two weeks I was over in the United Kingdom, and one morning in Bradford, England, I got up early for a 6.30 pastor's prayer breakfast. They wanted me to address them and to speak on some topic, and so I did. On the way back after the breakfast, as we were driving through town, the pastor that I went with pointed several churches out to me and said, no, those are no longer churches. They used to be churches. They're now Islamic mosques. He said, in fact, in Bradford and Leeds alone, 300 churches have been converted to mosques in those two towns alone. But then we went up to uh, Scotland, up in Glasgow, down to the, the central mission downtown that has a banner on that mission, a, a statement, a motto. It's the motto of the city of Glasgow. Let me rephrase that. At one time, it was the motto of the city of Glasgow. The motto of the city that the entire city adopted for itself was, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. It was on virtually every lamppost in that city. So that wherever you'd look, you'd see, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. Let Glasgow flourish everywhere. But as time goes on and as Jesus Christ gets pushed out of national life, they adopted a new motto. It now simply reads, let Glasgow flourish. They made it more generic, more secular, took off any religious connotation. Then we went down south to a place called Ashford, England, and I was talking to a pastor who airs a radio program on the air in the UK, which is very difficult to do because the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, owns all of the rights and monitors every kind of communication so that there is no longer free speech. And he was telling me that the BBC sent a letter saying, you can't anymore, even on your Christian radio program, announce that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. It's illegal. We'll pull you off the air if you do. You can't preach a narrow gospel. You have to include all faiths. So Jesus Christ, in that culture, by and large, and we're moving rapidly toward that in our culture. Jesus Christ has been relegated to, to a figurehead of, of a myth, a mythological tale that is outdated. And the church, for the most part, not, not every way, but for the most part, has become a very syrupy, sentimental place where people pat each other on the back, exchange platitudes, and have weddings, funerals, and recitals. That's what it has come to. Those churches still have crosses on them. But they don't live under the cross. 
They have, as what Paul said, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And the church is losing credibility among unbelievers in this country as people look at us and they wonder who we really are, how we're really identified, what really motivates us, what issues are really central. Dick Halverson, the chaplain of the Senate, once wrote, in the beginning the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became a culture. Finally it moved to America where it has become an enterprise. To Paul the Apostle, the church was the place where the gospel was preached, where Christ was glorified. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. That was Romans 1. He repeats sort of the same theme in Galatians 6. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then there is another passage that I want to read and center on this morning in the next few moments before we pass out communion and go our way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first two verses, the apostle says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, when the Christians gathered together and had church, Paul was not interested in discussing humanism, human ideas, exchanging human just feelings and ideologies that cannot change a life. He wasn't interested in preaching milky, syrupy sermons. He wanted to preach the crucified, risen, returning Christ. That was the central focus. And he preached the, the, the Christ of the New Testament. When, he, when Paul said Jesus Christ, he didn't mean Jesus Christ, the philosopher, the good example, the moral leader, the great teacher, the good man. He meant Jesus Christ, the God-man, the divine sacrifice for our sins. Christ crucified. On Wednesday night, we gathered and did something a little bit different than our normal Wednesday night Bible study. As you can see, there is a cross behind me this morning with paper tacked on it. And what we did is we focused on a passage in, in Colossians where it says that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us has been nailed to the cross. All of the guilt, all of the shame, the things that put us uh, in jeopardy, our sin, and that put Jesus on the cross. That list of sins, of ordinances that pointed against us has also been nailed to the cross when Jesus died. He paid for our sins. And so people wrote out on a piece of paper privately sins that they wanted to confess to the Lord, those besetting things, just, a, just one or two or three. Then we folded the paper and passed them to the center aisle. We collected them all, put them in an envelope that was stamped on it, paid in full. And the representative of each row came forward, and we gave them a nail and a hammer, and they nailed it to the cross. And we said, now let it go. He died for that.
It was a powerful, moving demonstration of what sin does. Sin put Jesus on the cross. Can't blame the Jews, the Romans. Our sins put him there. But it's also a graphic demonstration of how sin is removed from our lives. The cross. I received a, a little email since Wednesday night, and I wanted to read a portion of it to you today. Dear Skip, I wanted to let you know how thankful I am to God for inspiring you to lead Wednesday evening service the way you did. You see, I recently decided that my marriage wasn't what it should be, and I blamed it all on my wife. I thought we should end the marriage, and she got me to open up to her, and we began talking about all the things she did wrong. Last night, I realized that I was not pointing that finger of judgment at myself. When I wrote down my sins on that piece of paper, I realized that if I had been living my life the way Christ wanted me to live my life, that I would not be having marriage difficulties right now. Not only that, I experienced the shame that comes with the realization that I have committed all of those sins and more, and that Jesus died for me. Last night's service was very, very personal. Yes, it was for everyone there, and yes, Jesus died for everyone, but as far as I'm concerned, he died for me. And then it's signed. And then, P.S., on the way home last night, I asked my wife to forgive me for what I've done to her and our marriage, for my selfishness and stupidity, and she did. You were right in what you said last night. I will remember last night for a very long time, and today is definitely a new day. That's the cross. Paul said, I have determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean that Paul only preached evangelistic messages in Corinth or that he only focused on expounding passages that dealt with the atonement. We know that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth and his method was teaching the full counsel of God. However, what he is saying is the cross must always be first and foremost that until you accept God's revelation at the cross, that no other revelation is important. This is how you begin a relationship with God. You can pray all day long and have warm, fuzzy feelings all the time about God and church, but unless you come to the cross and say, forgive me of my sins, you can't come. It's the beginning. It is foremost. It is preeminent. It takes priority. But Paul said the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Folks, it is the cross that makes Christianity unpalatable to non-Christians. Well, don't talk about the cross. It's, it's outdated. It's bloody. It's, 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 it's murderous. It's horrible. There's power in it. The reason Paul placed such a strong emphasis on the cross is because the Lord Jesus did. One of the first accounts we have of Jesus is an interview he had with a man named Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The 
cross was so central to Jesus Christ's life that he would regard anything that took his, his focus off of the cross as satanic in origin. That's why when Peter tried hard to tell Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, don't suffer like you said you would, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God, you're thinking like a man. The reason Jesus said such strong words to his friend and servant, Peter, get behind me, Satan, is because the very same philosophy of Peter telling Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, don't get beaten up, and don't, don't get killed, was the same philosophy Jesus heard when he was 40 days in the wilderness. And Satan came to him. Knowing why Jesus had come, he had come to redeem the world, Satan said, the world is mine. I can give it to whoever I will, and if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you what you came for. You don't have to go by the way of the cross. You don't have to suffer. You just give me a moment of glory, and I'll hand it over to you freely. And Jesus rebuked Satan. He said, away with you. It is interesting, is it not, that even the devil himself understood the importance and the centrality of the cross, so much so that his temptation was to avert Jesus from going to it. Oswald Chambers said, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. The cross is the ladder to heaven. Jesus knew it. Satan knew it. Why, for the life of me, don't churches know it? Don't Christians realize it? Why all this, well, let's get rid of songs that deal with the atonement and the blood? There's no power without it. The cross must be central. In fact, it's the most positive, it's not negative, it's the most positive subject in the world. That's how we get forgiven. What could be more positive than having your sins forgiven and go to heaven? Everyone wants to talk about the character of Christ. Few want to talk about the cross. The popular armbands, what would Jesus do? They're great. But I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He would come to the earth and die on a cross. That was the central focus of his life. It was never an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't like, well, plan A failed, now what? The Father didn't spring it on Jesus at the last moment. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you before you left heaven, there's a cross waiting for you. It was plan A. It was planned before the prophets ever were on the earth. It was planned before Bethlehem ever happened. It was, it, it was thought about before creation. John said concerning Jesus Christ, he gave him the title in Revelation 13, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Peter talked about the blood of Jesus Christ as the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, foreordained from the foundation of the world. It was God's plan all along. So, as Christians, we love the cross because the cross is the center of the gospel and the gospel of Christ crucified, buried, and risen. Our belief in that, our trust in that, is what saves us. Now, when we speak of the cross, we're not speaking of the symbol as much as we are the substance, the event of the cross. 
Everywhere you look in our culture, you see a cross. You see it on jewelry. You see it necklaces, rings, buildings. But how many live under the power of the atonement of the cross of Jesus Christ? In fact, you want to get a weird look, not that you probably do, but try this sometime. Next time you see somebody wearing a cross as a piece of jewelry, ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And they'll look at you like, what? Well, you, you have a cross on. So? It's just a piece of jewelry. To us, it's more, isn't it? It's the event. George McLeod said, and I'll close with this, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. But that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. And that's what we're about today. We're all about celebrating a death because it brought life. And we're not ashamed of the cross, and we're not afraid to fight traffic to park far away and to walk through the crowds of cars and people and sit together and proclaim, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation and to receive it, that forgiveness, and to let the sins that we all have go be removed. Perhaps some of you this morning need to come to the cross on a personal level. You need to say yes to Jesus Christ because up to this point you've said yes to church, yes to ritual, yes to attending with friends, the social event, the importance of the influence of Christians. Maybe all of that short of saying, I turn from my sins and I turn my life over to you, Jesus, personally. That's the first step, the cross. And we're going to bow our heads and we're going to pray for just a moment before we pass out the elements. Lord, we thank you for this very solemn and very joyful occasion where we recall a death, not just any death, not the death of a good man, the death of the God-man, God in human flesh, our atoning sacrifice, our divine lamb, whose blood is able to take away the sins of the whole world if that world turns to you. We know, Lord, that your blood is efficacious to save. It's not automatic, however. We have to come. We have to make a decision. We have to say yes to you. We have to come to a crisis where we're willing to turn from what we know is wrong and turn to you. Lord, I pray that in this moment, some have gathered in this main building, some in the overflow, on the children's side or in the hub overflow, Lord, move now. Bring some to faith in Christ on a personal level. And as we're continuing in this moment of prayer, if, if you're here this morning and you desire to personally surrender your life to Christ, know that you're forgiven.
Up to this point, it hasn't been meaningful. It hasn't been personal. But you're going to change that right now. I want you to raise your hand up. And I'm going to pray for you right where you are. Just raise your hand up and keep it up in the air. God bless you, you, you up toward the front. Anybody else? Just raise it up in the back. Several of you. Up in the balcony, on the side. And if you're in the overflow, you raise your hand as well. Somebody over there will acknowledge. Lord, our prayer now is for these whom you love so deeply. And just like that letter that we just read. Yes, Jesus, you died for everyone, but you died also for these individually, personally. Make it real to them. Wherever you are, if you raise your hand and acknowledge that need, I want you to pray right now where you're sitting. Just say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I give you my life. I turn from my sin. I turn my life over to you completely. Take control. Empower me to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was nailing the envelope to the wooden cross. He nailed it. And as he walked away, I saw him go, Like, yes, taken care of, atoned for. And you need to know this as we take these elements. It says in Isaiah 53, but it pleased the Lord to bruise his son. It's an odd sounding thing that it would please a father to bruise, to see his son crucified. And here's the sense in which he is pleased. I have a hunch that every time a person says yes to Jesus Christ, just like some of you did today, and ask him to forgive you of your sins, that all of heaven, including the Father, goes, yes. Yes. You're mine. You belong to him. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And as David asked, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? I shall take the cup of thanksgiving. I shall bless the Lord. And that's what we do now, Lord. This wafer and this little cup of juice speak to us of a broken body and shed blood, a work of atonement so long ago, so eminently relevant now. We apply that to our lives. And as we take it, Lord, we say deep within, yes, forgiven. Glory to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.